Greetings and welcome to Albert Camus Radio. In the next several segments, we will be rolling out the latest research in Albert Camus studies. What we'll be doing now is uploading a series of podcasts from the annual meeting of the Albert Camus Society. And these papers that are presented in academic form, in an engagement of back and forth with some of the top scholars in Camus studies across the entire globe, will find their way into the Journal of Camus Studies, which is the premier academic journal when it comes to publishing on Albert Camus. And I'll be making some very exciting announcements in the near future about the relationship between Albert Camus Radio and the Albert Camus Society. First up, we have Simon Lee, who is president of the UK section of the Albert Camus Society particularly engaging speaker. And the title of the paper is Myth, Meaning, and Significance in Albert Camus and Frederick Nietzsche. So enjoy Mr. Lee's presentation. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Peter Francev, and I'm the president, president of the Albert Camus Society of the United States. And I'd like to welcome everyone to the <laughs> annual Albert Camus Society US-UK conference. Um, once again, because of the pandemic, you are listening to this um, because of, well, the pandemic. So this will be Zoom, a Zoom conference, and we will go ahead and have it recorded. We're gonna ask that everyone um, be muted, except for the speaker, and then you can unmute yourself when it's time for uh, the Q&A. Um, the first speaker of this year's conference is uh, Albert Camus Society President, um, UK President, Simon Lee, and his paper is on myth, meaning, and significance in Camus and Nietzsche. Simon, the floor is yours. Thank you, Peter, and uh, I'd just like to say hello to everyone, and I'm glad that we are having a Camus conference, even if it's a Zoom one and not a face-to-face -face one, in hope next year we'll all meet up again. So um, I'll begin my talk without further ado. In this talk, I will be looking at the nuance between meaning and significance. Significance is a kind of meaning and in everyday conversation, the two can often and are often used interchangeably. Camus uses both senses of the word and in a way that can be confusing if we're not careful to distinguish between the two. Additionally, I will suggest that significance often originates in a different kind of thinking about the world, the meaning, in short, meaning originates from reason and significance from what we could call mythical thought. My focus will be on the myth of Sisyphus, but I begin with Socrates. Socrates went about town challenging the people he met to show that he was not the wisest man in Athens. Why? His was a religious mission. Chirophon, his friend, had asked the oracle at Delphi if there was anyone wiser than Socrates, and the prophetess answered that there was not. Apparently, this was shocking news to the man himself. Socrates said at his trial, when I heard this, I said to myself, what can the God mean? And what is the interpretation of this riddle? For I know I have no wisdom, small or great. What can he mean when he says that I'm the wisest of men? And yet he is a God and cannot lie. That would be against his nature. After long consideration, I at last thought of a method of trying the question. I reflected that if I could only find a man wiser than myself, then I might go to the God with a refutation in my hand. I should say to him, 
here is a man who is wiser than I am, that you said that I was the wisest. And that quote that I read was on your handout as quote number one. So after hearing from Chirophon what the prophetess had to say, Socrates set about the task of questioning the wise people of Athens in order to find at least one person wiser than he. First, he goes to a politician. When I began to talk with him, Socrates says, I could not help thinking that he was not really wise. He questions a few politicians, but none of them turn out to be wise, let alone wiser than Socrates. Next, he turns to the poets. The poets are capable of producing works of great insight, but none of them can relay the meaning behind these insights. Their beautiful words come from a sort of genius and inspiration. Therefore, these poets are like the diviners or soothsayers, Socrates says, who also say many fine things, but do not understand the meaning of them. After striking out with the poets, Socrates goes to the artisans. These men knew a lot more about Socrates than making and repairing things, but just as little as the politicians and poets about higher matters. What Socrates was doing was dangerous, and he knew it. I went to one man after the other, being not unconscious of the enmity which I provoked, and I lamented and feared this. Remarking on his efforts to find a wise politician, he says, I tried to explain to him that he thought himself wise, but was not really wise, and the consequence was that he hated me, and his enmity was shared by several who were present and heard me. Socrates is speaking these words at his trial, a trial for his life that he will lose. So why did he do it? The necessity was laid upon me, he said. The word of God, I thought, ought to be considered first. And I said to myself, go I must to all who appeared to know and find out the meaning of the oracle. What motivated Socrates to pursue a question unto death? He was on a religious mission. Socrates felt it was his religious duty to find out the meaning behind the words of God revealed by the prophetess, prophetess at Delphi. In a basic sense, it's clear that he knows what the words mean. If he didn't, he wouldn't be surprised that no one um, in Athens was wiser than he. He would simply be confused, not being able to understand the message. What interests Socrates is the meaning behind the words. He wants to understand the significance of the prophetess's, the prophetess's prophecy. We can distinguish significance from meaning in the sense that I'm talking about today by pointing out two ways in which we can think about meaning. There's meaning as in what is signified by ideas without including the feelings people connect with these ideas. And then there's something that has significance when it is large enough to be noticed or have an impact, it is very important or possesses a special or hidden meaning. If you attempt to communicate with someone and they don't understand the meaning of your words or gestures, etc., then it's game over. You've reached a dead end. A text written in a language the reader doesn't understand will be meaningless to them in this sense. However, the person with whom you attempt to communicate gets the meaning of the words, but not the significance, then you would also consider this a failed attempt at communication. You might say something like, this guy doesn't get it. What this guy doesn't get is the significance why what you're saying is important. Returning to Socrates, if Chirophon had told him what the, the prophetess said, that no one in Athens is wiser, and Socrates merely smiled and said something like, how oh, nice, and then asked if Chirophon did anything else interesting while he was at Delphi, we'd wonder if Socrates didn't realize the significance of the prophecy. It is interesting to note here that the prophetess at Delphi, and I can't say prophetess very well, was not passing across her own wisdom when she made the prophecy, but rather this information came from the gods Socrates refers to in his trial, which was Apollo. The prophetess would rave whilst possibly being under the influence of something other than Apollo, 
and her ravings would be interpreted by priests who would then pass this interpretation on to whoever was consulting the oracle. So the priests have to find the meaning signified by the ravings of the prophetess, and whoever receives this meaning has the opportunity to find significance in the prophecy. The receiver of the prophecy was initially Chirophon, but he passes it on to Socrates, and it's Socrates' story that we're really interested in. Now, if you are a believer like Socrates and Plato claim to be, the idea that no one in Athens is wiser than Socrates has significance, as well as meaning in the more basic sense, simply because it's a message from Apollo. If you believe in a God and this God says something about you, then you're going to consider it quite important. We also know that the prophecy has an enormous impact on Socrates' life. Not only does he dedicate the rest of his life to seeking out the special or hidden meaning behind the words, this quest leads into a prison cell and a cup of poison ending up in his hands. So we have three aspects of what we mean when we say something is significant. It is significant. It is considered important. It has impact. And it may contain a special hidden meaning that we are motivated to discover. Before we leave Socrates, it's worth mentioning that the type of wisdom Socrates believes to be significant and values, it's worth mentioning the type of wisdom that Socrates believes to be significant and values highly. Highly enough not only to risk his life, but refuse to escape his fate. His friends make preparation for his jailbreak, but he refuses to go along with it because that would violate his religious mission. The type of wisdom we're talking about is not gained by rational argument, although Socrates does value this very highly indeed, but a kind of divinely inspired wisdom that is felt bodily and then interpreted. We could call this wisdom from affect. And it's not just the prophecy that's an example of wisdom from affect. As a reminder, Apollo in some divine way inspires the prophetess. She then raves about it. And then the priests interpret her ravings. Socrates is guided on what I've called his religious quest the entire time by wisdom from affect. The Greeks believed that our wisdom was the result of divine madness. There are two kinds of madness in the Greek world. Madness caused by illness, what today we call mental illness, which is destructive. And the other kind, which is a positive intervention by the gods. Socrates tells Phaedrus the four gods responsible for divine madness, and this is on the sheet. We divided the divine kind of madness into four parts, each with its own deity, with attributed prophetic inspiration to Apollo, mystical inspiration to Dionysus, poetic inspiration to the Muses, and the fourth kind of Aphrodite into love. According to Socrates, our ability to make predictions is given us by Apollo, to form a union with others by Dionysus, art and philosophy by the Muses, and love by Aphrodite and Eros. In fact, it's possible to believe in some kind of divine intervention without knowing who or what intervened. Socrates often referred to his divine something, his daimonion, or daemon, as it's sometimes called. We see the result of an intervention by his daemon in the Phaedrus, when he comes to realize that he has made a stupid and irreligious speech. In an attempt to impress the young and good-looking Phaedrus, Socrates comes up with an argument to defend an idea he does not believe, that love is bad. This is irreligious, because for Greeks like Socrates, love is the god Eros, and so if love is bad, then Eros is bad. Phaedrus is particularly taken with a speech given by Lysias on love, and out of jealousy, Socrates shows off by making a better speech than Lysias, defending the same idea. However, halfway through, he cuts the speech short and attempts to leave. And here's a long quote that's on the sheet I gave you. I was about to cross the river, my friend, he says to Phaedrus, when my familiar divine sign, his daemon, came to me, which stops me from time to time. And when I'm about to do something, I seem to hear a sudden voice 
I've written voice twice there, telling me not to leave until I have purified myself from some offence or other which I've committed against the gods, some offence or other which I've committed against the gods. Now, I may not be a very good one, but I'm a seer. I'm like people who are bad at writing. I'm good enough only for my own purposes. And so I do already understand beyond a shadow of a doubt what my offence was. After all, the soul has, the soul too has something of the same ability that seers possess. Just now, when I was delivering my speech, something disturbed me and I was rather worried. As Ibicus says, lest the cost of winning honour Lest the cost of winning honour among men is that I sin in the eyes of the God. But now I see where I went wrong. Socrates sees where he went wrong, seemingly in an instant and beyond a shadow of a doubt, because his divine sign, his daemonian or his daemon, tells him so. In the Apology, Socrates tells the court that his daemon, which he's had since childhood, never tells him what to do, but tells him to turn away from something he's about to do if this is the wrong thing to do. It was his daemon that told him, for example, not to take part in public affairs, not to become a politician. Whether Socrates' divine something is a god, comes from a god, or is just his inner voice is not relevant here. What is relevant is that this voice tells Socrates what is and is not valuable. Socrates says his daemon frequently intervened in his life, that it opposed certain causes of action. However, on the day of his trial, the daemon was silent. It did not attempt to stop Socrates going to court, nor did it interrupt any of his speeches to the court. Socrates takes this as convincing proof that not only what he's doing is important, but he also learns something about the value of death, that it cannot be evil. I will leave Socrates now, but the takeaway is the following. One, we can distinguish meaning and significance. Two, by significance is meant that which makes an idea important or impactful. Three, when something has significance, we are motivated to seek out any possible special or hidden meanings. And four, the awareness of something's significance, at least in some cases, comes from an interpretation of affect. It is a rational rather than rational thought. Now, you may at this point be thinking, this is all very interesting, very interesting, but this is a Camus conference. So where does Camus come into all this? Well, something I'll shortly be discussing are myths and myth-making. One of the features of myth, arguably the purpose of myth-making, is to give significance to human life and our place in the universe. Camus' most important philosophical essay has myth in the title and climaxes with Camus' own version of the Sisyphus myth. And it's important to note that this is Camus' own version of the Sisyphus myth. Camus is the mythmaker here. To be clear then, when I refer to the myth of Sisyphus, I mean Camus' essay. And when I refer to Camus' Sisyphus myth, I just mean the last section of the essay where he offers his own version. Now, in my research, I'm particularly interested in political myth. And if I give you Cairo Batici's definition of political myth, which is the most recent and, in my opinion, the best, you will see how Camusian it all sounds. And this is on the sheet from the philosophy of political myth. Political myth is understood as a work on a common narrative by which a social group provides significance to its political conditions and needs. It ultimately stems from a universal human need, the need to live in a world less indifferent to us. Pretty Camusian. I will skip over a lot of the philosophy of political myth for timekeeping purposes. When I say political, take that simply refer to how people living in groups make decisions about the group and its members. Now, the myth of Sisyphus would appear to be strongly about the individual. However, the Sisyphus myth that Camus offers at the end, in which Sisyphus is referred to as the proletarian of the gods, and whose fate is explicitly linked and compared with the workers of today, is clearly a political myth. In lieu of my own definition of political myth, I will offer five important aspects that all political myths share. One, they are all shared in the form of dramatic narratives. 
Two, they give significance to our actions, particularly our political actions. Three, they give significance through evocation, that's wisdom from mathematics. Four, they are always understood as calls for action. And five, they are focused on the present, but refer to the past in order to make predictions of the future. In other words, saying, look at what we are now. This is how we became what we are now. And this is what will happen if we continue the way we are now. So the focus is on the present, but with a view in the past and the future. In the myth of Sisyphus, Camus is concerned with finding meaning in a world indifferent to us. The kind of meaning he's looking for is this something that will give us justification for the belief. We cannot help but have that our lives and the lives of others are important, that our actions can make an impact, and there is something special about human life. The kind of meaning that Camus is searching for in the essay is therefore significance. To find this, Camus employs rational argument and myth-making. The essay famously begins with the subject of suicide. Specifically, Camus wants to know if the absurd, the yearning for significance in a meaningless universe, dictates death. How the absurd could dictate death is quite nuanced. But simply, if all the things that give significance to our lives and give us reason to live our lives are based on myths, understood temporarily as evocative fictions, that an entirely intellectually honest person, upon discovering this, would seemingly have to live a life without significance, unmotivated to do anything. We can look to the Tolstoy to see what this kind of life would look like. In his confession, the story of his becoming a Christian, Tolstoy found himself, prior to finding faith, unable to find a why to motivate his actions. Everything he thought of doing was followed by the questions, what for, why bother? And here's a long quote, but worth reading, that is on the handout. And I tried to answer them. The questions seemed such stupid, simple, childish ones. But as soon as I touched them and tried to solve them, I at once became convinced, first, that they are not childish and stupid, but the most important and profound of life's questions. And secondly, that occupying myself with my samsara estate, the education of my son, or the writing of a book, I had to know why I was doing it. As long as I didn't know why, I could do nothing and could not live. Amid the thoughts of estate management, which greatly occupied me at the time, the question would suddenly occur. Well, you have 6,000 deasatinas, I can't pronounce that, of land in Samara government and 300 horses. And what then? And I was quite disconcerted and didn't know what to think. Or when considering plans for the education of my children, I would say to myself, what for? Or when considering how the peasants might become prosperous, I would suddenly say to myself, but what does it matter to me? Or when finding... When thinking of the fame my works would bring me, I would say to myself, very well, you will be more famous than all the writers in the world. And what of it? I could find no reply at all. The questions would not wait. They had to be answered at once. And if I did not answer them, it was impossible to live. But there was no answer. Eventually, Tolstoy looks around to discover why others don't seem plagued with these questions and discovers their belief in God gave their lives the significance his lacked. Once he found God, Tolstoy, ha Tolstoy has what we saw Socrates had, a religious significance to his belief and actions. But the problem of suicide in the myth of Sisyphus is quite nuanced and precise. Camus is not arguing that without myths to give significance to our lives, we simply feel that life is not worth living and then possibly choose to not go on living. Rather, he is suggesting that life is not livable without myth, and then wondering if this presents a serious problem for intellectually honest people. Let's look at why that might, why it might be that without myth, life is unlivable. Lance Bennett refers to the kind of myths we're talking about here as like the lenses in a pair of glasses, in the sense that they are not the things people see when they look at the world, they are the things they see with. 
Without these lenses, we cannot see the world. The world not only loses its meaning in terms of significance, but also in the first sense of the word meaningless discussed earlier. It would be like trying to read a text in a language you don't speak. It was once argued that in order to understand the universe, we just need to learn to read the scriptures properly. That is, understanding the universe as a book written by God. Galileo argued that we should think of the universe like a maths book written in mathematical language. Living in such a universe, but unable to understand maths, would, he said, be like wandering around a dark labyrinth in vain. If we imagined understanding the universe like reading a book, whether a religious scripture or a mathematical textbook, if myths are our reading glasses, then without them, we cannot read the text. Unable to understand the words, it would be like attempting to read a text in a language we don't speak, and therefore meaningless. We can see then that in the myth of Sisyphus, Camus is interested in both kinds of meaninglessness, a lack of meaning and a lack of significance. This all relates to the problem of suicide in the following way. Imagine that in moments of clarity, an entirely intellectually honest person realizes, A, that life is meaningless without myth, and that B, a meaningless life cannot be lived. We can't do anything. We don't understand anything. Borrowing from Galileo, we'd be stumbling around in the dark. Note that this is different to realizing that life is insignificant without myth, because it doesn't follow that an insignificant life cannot be lived. Tolstoy lived on for years. It just isn't very pleasant to live this way. This entirely intellectually honest person, having achieved a moment of clarity, that life is meaningless without myth and that a meaningless life cannot be lived. And note to remember what was said at the beginning of the talk about the wisdom of affect. All such moments of clarity offered by Camus in the myth of Sisyphus originate in affect, the revolt of the flesh is observed. This entirely intellectually honest person is aware that the awareness of the meaninglessness of life is fleeting and they will soon see the world once again through the lenses of myth. The problem for these honest people comes if myths are taken to be untrue. That is, if myths are dramatic fictions designed to give significance to life in an indifferent universe, then an entirely intellectually honest person has a problem. If they allow themselves to return to the world of myth, and if myths are fictions, then they are no longer being entirely intellectually honest if they allow themselves to do this. If this is the case, and it turns out that it isn't according to Camus, but if it is the case, then the only option for the entirely intellectually honest person is suicide. In other words, only if during their fleeting, only if during their fleeting moment of awareness they kill themselves before returning to the everyday world created by myth, can they retain their total intellectual honesty. The problem for the entirely intellectually honest person is, can there be true myths, or can myths somehow be neither true nor untrue? Now, Camus knows that there are very few, if any, entirely intellectually honest people. He even doubts that anyone has met the problem of suicide in this way. For most, if not all people, the problem is one of significance rather than meaninglessness. Many commentators have missed the distinction or slip up and conflate the two. For example, Nagel in his essay on the absurd, which explicitly references Camus, says that even if we discovered that the human race existed because they were created to provide food for other creatures, this wouldn't give our lives significance. But of course this alone wouldn't give our lives significance. This would simply offer us meaning in the form of a description of the facts. Only we can give our lives significance based on this knowledge, and it would be through myth-making based on an interpretation of the fact that we are food for other creatures. Camus in the myth is careful to keep the significant and the meaningful apart. And here's an aside for the Nietzsche fans. Suppose we did discover that at some point in human history, we were introduced to the world as food for higher creatures. 
Those familiar with Nietzsche's The Use and Abuse of History for Life can apply his three ways of using history, the monumental, the antiquarian and the critical, to this newly discovered fact about our history. The monumental way of using history is the closest to the use of history employed by political myth. We saw that Socrates has the gods and his daemons. Tolstoy had gods to give his life significance. Nietzsche, probably the most famous atheist in philosophy, uses the idea of a Socrates-like daemon in his use of the myth of the eternal return to give significance to life. Consider the aphorism from Gay Science, The Heaviest Burden, which is Gay Science 341 and on your handouts. What if a demon crept after you in your loneliest of loneliness some day or night and said to you, this life as you live it at present, have and have lived it, you must live it once more and also innumerable times. There will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and every sigh and all the unspeakably small and great in thy life must come to you again and all in the same series and sequence. And similarly, this spider and this moonlight among the trees and similarly, this moment and I myself the eternal sand glass of existence will ever be turned small, and you with it, you speck of dust. Would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon that so spoke? Or have you once experienced a tremendous moment in which you would answer him, you are a god, and never did I hear anything so divine? If that thought acquired power over you as you are, it would transform you and perhaps crush you. The question with regard to all and everything do you want this once more and also for innumerable times would lies the heaviest burden upon your activity? Or how would you have become, or how would you have to become favorably inclined to yourself and to life so as to long for nothing more ardently than for this last eternal sanctioning and sealing? Put simply, the idea that our lives will be repeated over and over for all eternity in, exact, in the exact same way gives enormous significance to our actions. This is controversial in Nietzsche studies, and we don't have time to go in it now, but I'll say for now that the controversy arises because the commentators are mistaking Gay Science 341 as an attempt at rational argument rather than at myth-making. And as a consequence, they look for the logic of taking the idea that life eternally returns in the exact same way as a motivating factor in living your life as to be somewhat missing or lacking. But Nietzsche is looking to aspire wisdom through affect, the demon that imparts the knowledge in the aphorism is the same kind of demon that lets Socrates know when he's right or wrong. Socrates doesn't question rationally what the demon says. He just trusts that he's, the intrigue is being imparted, that he knows something and has gained wisdom. What Camus is looking for in the myth of Sisyphus is a myth that gives significance to human life. Notice that in the essay, Camus does not argue for human life being significant. Rather, he evokes the significance by a myth by appealing to our affects. Throughout the essay, he is interested in our emotional response to the absurd. Introducing the idea of revolt, giving life its value, significance, he says, and this is on the sheet, that revolt gives life its value, spread out over the whole length of life, but it restores its majesty to that life. To a man devoid of blinkers, there is no finer sight than that of the intelligence that grips with a reality that transcends it. The sight of human pride is unequaled. No disparagement is of any use. That discipline that the mind imposes on itself, that will conjured up out of nothing, that face-to-face -face struggle have something exceptional about them. And this is Camus' key sort of argument for revolt giving life its value. It's not an argument at all. He is evoking a particular feeling about revolt. 
So Camus does not offer an argument, but a description, which is all he promises to do on the first page of the essay. Where he says, I offer a description, not, not argument or metaphysic. In the Sisyphus myth at the end of the essay, he reiterates the idea with a dramatic narrative. Camus is attempting to communicate the feeling of the absurd and with it a kind of knowledge about human beings and our place in the universe. Political myths only work when they find an audience sympathetic to the myth. That is, people on exposure to the myth can experience the kind of wisdom from affect that the myth maker intends to communicate. Scholars that claim Camus' Sisyphus myth does not work because it fails to match exactly the experiences of the French proletariat. Paul Loeb, for example, and Julian Young have made this argument. Miss the point because they are looking for the meaning of the words and not the significance of the myth. When we read the myth of Sisyphus, keeping a close eye on when Camus distinguishes between meaning and significance, and when he employs rational argument and when he employs myth, we get a much richer reading of the experience. Now, I'm just gonna to come to the end of the talk here because it's 4.30, but something that might come up in the questions or discussion is how can there be a true myth? How can myth be sort of outside of truth and fiction, which is the main concern that Camus has in the myth of Sisyphus. Uh, but that's the end of my talk. Thank you for listening. And I hope my microphone was on while I was <laughs> doing it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to that fabulous presentation and sort of a live look into how uh, studies in Albert Camus are actually advanced in the field. This is an engagement between the top scholars in the world on cutting edge pieces of work and research on Camus. And you'll be seeing a whole series of these as you listen to this particular um, set of segments that cover the annual meeting of the Camus Society. Enjoy your day. Thank you.